Hi, and welcome to Bookable Space, the audio literary salon. Author of Remembered, I'm your host, Yvonne Battlefelton. I'm a writer, host, presenter, academic, and a reader. I love being read to. In each podcast episode, a writer will read to us and answer three questions. We might talk about how they developed the characters, the sense of place, why they wrote the book, something they learned through research, and more. Ultimately, through each episode, I hope to get to know each author a little more, and I hope that you do too. Each episode is about 30 minutes. You'll find the author's bio and a bit about the book below the episode. Thanks for joining in. So Antoinette, thanks so much for joining us. And before we get started with a reading, can I ask you, where did the idea for The Secrets Left Behind come from? Um, hi, Yvonne. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on today. Um, well, The Secrets Left Behind, I think, was an idea that was brewing for quite some time, um, probably, as you will gather from my accent, I'm from Ireland. Um, and we, over the last, uh, I suppose, 10 years or so, um, there's been a, a lot of coverage in the media um, in relation to how women in Ireland were treated um, under a a pretty oppressive regime um, imposed by the Catholic Church. So the stories from the secret left, sorry, the inspiration for the secrets left behind was a mix of being exposed to those stories really on a, on a daily basis in the news, but then also on a more personal level in my own family. You know, you, you'd hear little snippets and uh, of things happening and, and they just made me wonder. For example, I remember my mother telling me once um, she comes from a family of 11 um, and, you know, contraception was banned in Ireland um, up until the 90, the late 1970s. And even after that, only married women could, could access it. Um, but that my grandmother, after every child that she had, she would have to go to confession and um, ask for the priest's forgiveness um, after after sleeping with her husband um, and and giving birth to the child, so and, and that was commonplace. That wasn't uh, that wasn't anything out of the ordinary. So it was just um, an amalgamation of of all those things and and how women were treated. And and then I came up with these characters and um, and put them in situations where they they were dealing with the, with the same oppression and um, misogynistic society and and built their stories around that. And it's interesting because I feel like this is the first time I've heard of that. So your grandmother had to go and confess, but not your grandfather. Oh, no, 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 no. Just just the women. Just the women. Yeah. I don't even I can't even understand the rationale behind it as if it doesn't take two or at least it, it didn't take two people. Indeed, well, any logic, uh, logically thinking person would <laughs> would assume that, wouldn't they? <laughs> um, but no, I mean, it was it was just it, it was there were terrible times to to grow up in, and the, there was just no support for women. The the poverty in the country, of course, was was really terrible at the time, um, and you had these religious um, institutions that were running mother and baby homes where unmarried women would be taken in, you know, to give birth and atone for their sins. And um, but but the men just were let off scot-free, basically, you know, and almost with a pat on the back. And, and it was the women that suffered the consequences and the children, of course. Oh, my goodness. That's um, 
it's unsettling and unnerving and my gosh um i could see how it could compel to write this to write the story for these women and for for people now to even know what was going on and to kind of process that can i ask you for a reading please you can indeed i'd be delighted to do that um so I am going to, uh, for this reading, I'll just give you a little bit of context. Um, It comes early in the novel. So this part of the novel is in 1982 and is at the home of Kate and Hugh Millington. And it's set in a a stately home in Ireland. So um, kind of a a home that would have been uh, built by the English, um, the English settlers in Ireland. Um, And and people, those houses still exist in Ireland to this day. So this couple, um, Hugh Millington, would have inherited off his parents. He's living there with his wife, Kate, their daughter, Alice. Um, And there's a party, there's a party taking place in the house. So somewhere in the far off distance, a raised female voice could be heard. It went on for some time, but no one paid much attention through the fog of smoke and the haze of brandy. A couple of people left muttering their disappointment that parties at Hatchwood weren't what they used to be. A lift in the music and people dragged their tired bodies off sofas and began to dance again. Max sped up the tempo for a few songs, but the new lease of life was causing another argument between a couple in a corner of the room, and so he slowed it down again. Strangers in the night brought all the couples in the room onto the floor. Wrapping themselves around each other, they clung on as if for their lives, determined to see it out to the end. Suddenly, the song was cut short. The loud voice that had continued to rise in the first verse now hit a crescendo and a violent scream brought everybody back in the room. Alice hesitated, but was the first to move, rushing through the door into the hall. The guests poured out behind her, one by one, glad that finally something was happening. They thought how disappointed those who had left early would be. In the hall, they blinked as they tried to comprehend what they were seeing. There was screaming, but now it was Alice who was screaming. She was on her knees, her back to them, shielding someone who lay on the floor, She was leaning forward, folds of mustard silk fanned out on the floor beside her, a pale leg twisted at a right angle poked out from beneath the silk. The guests stared in horror. Alice was rocking back and forth and wailing now. Somebody would have to do something fast. Shouldn't somebody call a doctor? One of the men moved forward and knelt down beside her. He whispered into her ear and she shook her head. He tried again and this time she looked up at him and nodded. He stood and reached down to her pulling her into a standing position. Alice stood over her mother's lifeless body. Kate's eyes were open, her pupils wide with shock. A fresh bruise, red across one side of her forehead, was in stark contrast to the paleness of her skin. From her ear, a trickle of blood was flowing. A woman stepped forward and tried to move Alice. As the woman moved her away from the body, they watched the physical effort it took her to draw her eyes from her mother. They followed her every move. She lifted upward, She lifted her eyes upwards and gazed at the top of the stairs. There stood her father, Hugh, alone, pale and shaking. Hugh grasped the banister beside him and began to sway. Alice walked around the body and up the stairs where she wrapped her arms around him. This movement caused the room to spring into action. Someone said, where's the phone? We need to call an ambulance. Putting her arm around her father's waist and seeming to take the weight of him, Alice walked him down the stairs into the hall and passed the guest to a hidden corner where the phone was perched on a table. They watched as with shaking hands he dialed the number and waited. I need an ambulance, urgently. His voice was that of a stranger, soft, weak, 
not the assured and calm tones of Hugh. It's my wife. There's been an accident. She's fallen down the stairs. Hugh described where the house was and hung up the phone. His eyes were drawn back to his wife's body. He walked over to her and knelt down beside her. Her hair lay in a tangled mess across the unblemished side of her face. Brushing it to one side, he bent over her and kissed her cheek. Tears streamed down his face as he began to sway back and forth. He placed his hands over her open eyes and closed them. They heard him whisper, my darling Kate, what have I done? Someone handed Alice a blanket and she put it over her mother. She helped her father up. Once she was sure he was safely standing without her support, she turned to the guests and in her soft, small voice whispered, I think it's time you all went home. They stood still, none of them moving at her command. One of the men from the village stepped forward. Are you sure that's a good idea, love? Shouldn't we stay? The police might want to talk to us. She looked back at him blankly. When no response was offered, he tried again. Alice, love, I think we should stay here. With an audible catch in her voice, she pleaded, please leave us alone. Oh, my goodness. Antoinette, what a, what an opening. It it kind of, uh, yeah, it, it gets into the story straight away. It certainly does. But I love that you leave us breathless. It's so vivid and there's so much tension and action and the characters and, and mystery as well. And like distrust, it, like it's just so much there. Like, wow. <laughs> what mm-hmm. was, so you, part of the story is set in the 1950s and part is set in the 80s. Can you talk to us about balancing the the two time differences, the eras, even down to the um the details with the phone and all these different changes that might have happened between the fifties and eighties? I'm wondering how you you know kept it all separate. Definitely. Um, so yeah, it, it was certainly challenging. Um, so I suppose that there are four main characters, four female leads in the book. There's Kate and Alice that you've just met there, Kate and her daughter, Alice. And then there are two other ladies, Faith and Nancy. So the stories of Alice, Faith and Nancy happen concurrently in 1982. And then Kate's story begins in 1952. And then travels to 1982 to, to that scene that you've just seen there. So I suppose the chal- for the, the first challenge was um, was in writing Kate scenes from the 50s and obviously knowing what I know now about what happened then um, and and when her story starts uh, when when the the 1950s start part of the story starts she's a very young girl she's only 17 18 she's naive um she's lived a very very sheltered life so it was trying to put myself into the mindset of this young woman um, and and how she would have viewed this 1950s world so of course I I I, you know I did plenty of research into uh, the clothes and the modes of transport and the language people used and and all of those kind of things and also obviously how Ireland was at the time the economy in Ireland how wealthy people as opposed to to poor people lived at the time and and the differences the the economic differences that existed there and but I suppose the real challenge was as I said knowing what I know now and and the awful things that were done to women and and trying to get into that mindset of Alice and and write her as you know not being bitter because I found myself as these awful things were happening to her uh, sorry to Kate not Alice as these awful things were happening to Kate I I was I was thinking you know I, I was writing her and her dialogue as being really angry but then I thought no 
they ha- these things happen to happen to her yet they're about to happen and I needed to rein that in you know tone it down a little bit because she didn't know you know she didn't know that that she was in this this society and that these things were happening it was it was just normal life to her I love that and I love that like pulling yourself back and, and looking again through the character's eyes and letting that be kind of the the lens that you see her world through it sounds really powerful and also like a like a process like not, you know, a sitting down and going, nope, this is this is her, but a learning process. And I, I quite like how writing can teach us how to write. Definitely. Um, I agree with you on that, Yvonne. I'm sure you encountered this yourself. You know, it's it's your first draft and you get it down and and then you go back. And basically, for me, the second and, and with with this novel and with my first novel, the second draft is basically a rewrite. The first draft is just, you know, whoosh, get everything down on paper doesn't really matter just get it all down there and then you have the idea and then the real work starts I think mine is 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 pretty similar in that in the first draft kind of anything is possible and it's okay if I don't have um, all of the answers quite yet and when I go back then it's going okay so why and how and really filling in those spaces definitely yeah (laughs) can we have another reading please you can indeed it's my pleasure uh, so this time, um, so we're going to go to Nancy. So she's one of the other ladies. Again, this is 1982. Now, Nancy is an interesting character. Uh, she has just moved to Rathmichael, which is where the big house that, that we were in a few minutes ago and um, where that house is. She is a loner. So she has no friends. She has no family that we know of. She really is terrified of interaction with people. She's overwhelmingly shy. She doesn't want to talk to people and she she has these um, patterns in her life that she's established um, when she goes about her day-to-day life, um, things that she does in order to avoid interaction with people. Um, and the only thing, the only person that she does interact with is the local priest. And that is only because she is after getting a job as a secretary in the parish office. So she has no choice but to, uh, but to talk to him. <laughs> so um, she pulled her good wool coat off the coat stand in the hall and walking out the front door, turned left and made her way up the main street towards St. Michael's Church. Turning into the churchyard, she was surprised to discover that it was still full of people, even though she had timed her departure from home perfectly. Panic set in. If she began to make her way through the yard towards the church, someone might start trying to talk to her. Why on earth were they all standing around? It was eight now. Father Reynolds would be livid. For a moment, she considered turning around and walking home. No one had spotted her. But the thought that Father Reynolds would note her absence from the church and might ask her to explain herself at work tomorrow filled her with dread. She couldn't turn back now. To her right, she saw the cool, dark row of ancient trees bordering the lawn that separated the church from the garden of Father Reynolds' house. Slipping into the shelter of the trees, she decided this was the best place to stay. She could hide there until they all moved into the church, at which time she would be able to move in silently behind them. A fat, ancient beech tree gave her full protection and she was able to watch them all unnoticed. From her secret vantage point, she felt safe and she noticed for the first time how alert they all looked. There was a buzz around the churchyard. They were different this morning from how they usually presented themselves at Mass. No heads bent in hungover agony, no eyes glazed over, willing this part of the day to be done to be done with so they could go home and relax. They stood in groups of four and five, chatting in low voices, leaning in a little closer, 
and concentrating hard, she was able to make out what some of them were saying. Hearing snippets of conversations, she gathered that they were discussing the Garda car that had travelled through the village at speed earlier that morning. She tried to concentrate harder on hearing what they were saying. She thought she caught the words, broke her neck, and her heart began to pound as she watched the women placing their hands over their mouths in shock. Forgetting that she was doing her best not to be noticed, she inched towards them, straining to hear more. She could see Maggie Hanley, the shop owner, holding court with one of the group. Her face was animated, flushed red with the excitement at being the bearer of someone else's bad news. They're saying he's been arrested. I don't think she fell down the stairs. Sounds more like she was pushed. You just never know, do you? The venom in Maggie's voice shocked her. From what they were saying, a terrible tragedy had befallen someone. But who? Nancy didn't want to hear any more. Wanting to remove herself from them all, she took a step back. A sudden tug on her dress caused her to gasp. Turning her head to see what had caused the tug, she realised the bottom of her dress was caught on one of Father Reynolds' blackthorn bushes. Twisting her body to free herself made it worse as the dress became further entangled and the spiky branches pulled at her hem. Nancy's movement behind the tree caused Maggie to halt her monologue and look over to where she was. Who sat in there? Nancy Canning, is that you? What on earth are you doing skulking around the churchyard like you're spying on us? Shaking her head, she turned back to her captive audience. The rest of them briefly stared at Nancy, sniggering under their breaths before returning their full attention to Maggie's monologue. She could feel her face burn crimson and tears well up behind her eyes at Maggie's unkind words. Unhooking the ripped hem of her skirt from the blackthorn and trying desperately not to be noticed, she walked through the crowd with her shoulders hunched over. Making her way to the church door, she met a bewildered-looking Father Reynolds. What's going on here, Nancy? Why is everyone still outside? We all need to come together now, not stand around engaged in idle gossip. Turning his attention from the crowds outside, he looked at her properly for the first time. Are you all right, Nancy? You look upset. Has something happened? He put his hand out and placed it on her shoulder. It was the first human contact she'd felt in months if she didn't count the weekly peace handshake at mass. Closing her eyes briefly, she let the warmth of a human touch soak into her being. I'm fine, Father. The priest smiled at her and she left him to make her way to her favourite place at the back of the church. Within minutes, he'd herded his congregation into the small church and taken his place on the altar. He began the mass with the usual blessing, but instead of then turning to the normal prayers, he paused for a moment before continuing. It was with great sadness that we learned this morning of the tragic passing of Kate Millington of Hatchwood House. We offer up this mass and our prayers this morning for the soul of Kate and that God will grant comfort in this time of need to her beloved husband, Hugh, and her daughter, Alice. Sitting at the back, Nancy gasped, but no matter how hard she tried, she wasn't able to catch a breath. The light around her grew suddenly dim. Feeling for the pew in front of her, she stumbled to her feet. Those around her turned to look, but Nancy didn't notice. Squeezing herself through the tiny gap beside her, she ran towards the door, pushing it open and let it slam with a bang behind her. Kate Millington was dead. That's what Father Reynolds had said. She couldn't see properly as her vision blurred, but she forced herself to run the length of the main street. Reaching her front door, she fumbled for her keys and struggled to open it. Slamming it behind her, she slid to the floor, her whole body shaking as she tried to comprehend what she'd just heard. Wow, I find myself holding my breath while you're <laughs> while you're reading. Good. <laughs> I know, right? That's what I was hoping for. 
Wow. So each of your characters, of course, so they all want different things. And I'm always curious about what it's like when your character kind of talks to you or how people create characters and what that process is like. So I wanted to know if your four central characters, and I don't want you to give anything away because mm-hmm. um, I know I, for one, am really good at giving away spoilers. And um, <laughs> people are like, oh, do you give spoiler alerts? And I'm like, no, you know me. Like, so the butler did it. No, <laughs> but, but I really do try not to. And so that's why um, I'm going to ask you. So without giving anything away, okay, what would you like to say to each of the four characters if they were with you right now? Okay, well, I love this question um, because they do. I mean, your characters stay with you and they become really real. Um, so I think to, to Kate, um, if she were still alive, because that's I have given away that spoiler, but that happens in the first couple of pages. So it's not really a spoiler. Uh, to Kate, I would say, talk to your husband. And um, she, you know, she has lived this, this terrible not terrible, but sad. She's lived a really, really sad life. Um, and, you know, the, through no fault of her own, these these terrible things happened to her when she was very young. But then to, to make that worse, she she marries Hugh. And instead of telling him the truth, um, she, she kind of allows her resentment for what has happened to her just fester inside of her. And, you know, instead of sharing it with him, she begins to turn it on him a bit as well. Um, So to her, I would say, you know, talk to your husband. To Alice, uh, I would say, Alice, Kate's daughter, I would say, um, you know, don't feel guilty because I think Mm -hmm. as the child, she carries a lot of the guilt and and she finds out a lot of things about her mother after her mother has died. And and she feels really bad that she she didn't understand her mother better or didn't try to understand her mother better. So um, I would say to her, that's not her fault. Um, Faith, who uh, unfortunately we, we won't meet today, but Faith, um, the, the fourth character, um, Faith is a New Yorker and I love her. And uh, Faith kind of stayed with me. She's the, you know, she's the, the trailblazer in the, in the book and she gets things moving. And uh, I, I kind of imagine and hope that, you know, in later years, Faith would have been all those amazing, powerful women um, that came out when, when all those stories that we were talking about at the beginning um, came out about, you know, about the, the survivors of, of these awful, awful places that, that the church was running, these homes and, and terrible places like them, that Faith, you know, would have been that woman on, on national television and on national radio, you know, exposing it all and talking about it and, you know, bringing, uh, bringing justice um, to the fore. So uh, that's what I, you know, that's what I'd say to her, to, to Faith, go for it, do it keep at it um and then with nancy uh, who you've just met there uh, i'd say to her stop stop being afraid of people talk to people and you know and and again she some bad things happened to her in her past that, that you find out about but she carries a lot of shame and none of it is her fault so you know um i think yeah if she if she just opens herself up a little bit things would be better wow i love how very human their um their challenges are and how as readers, it kind of gives us something. It reminds us to maybe be kinder and gentler to other people. But also when we're hearing about stories that um, of the past, to kind of consider the people, the, the past that people are living with, the memories and mm. the terrors and the horrors that people are, are you know working with and living with every day. So I think what a wonderful way for us to be reminded to be kinder to other people. Mm. And now that we know that... Um, what you would say to each of the four characters. Can we have one final reading, please? We can. 
can. We can indeed. We'll have one final part. Um, so this part um, is going back in time. Uh, so it's back to Kate again. And Kate and Hugh have just married. Um, so we're back in the 1950s. Um, they married in London and they have returned to Ireland to Hatchwood House for the first time um, to, to move into it as their, as their new home. Pushing the door open, Kate couldn't believe what she saw. Her husband stood, his elbow resting on the mantelpiece, a glass of brandy in one hand, sitting on the large couch opposite him, looking ill at ease, were her parents. Her immediate desire was to turn and flee the room. Hearing the door open, Hugh turned to face her. Surprise, darling, I hope you don't mind, but I thought it would make make your first night home in Hatchwood easier if your parents were here to spend it with you. Nothing could have been further from the truth. The last people she wanted to see were her parents, but now her mother was standing up, coming towards her, her eyes filled with tears. Katie, I can't believe you've come home to us. Mary O'Neill opened her arms and pulled her into a hug. Over her shoulder, her father was staring at her. She took in how much older he now looked compared to the last time she saw him. As her mother drew away from her, she took in Mary's once auburn hair, now a ragged grey, and the many wrinkles that covered her face. What are you doing here, Mammy? How did you know I'd come home? Her father still hadn't spoken and remained seated. It looked as if there would be no warm welcome home from him. Mary broke the silence. It was Mr. Millington's idea, love. She had to think for a second who Mr. Millington was and then realised her mother was referring to Hugh. Unable to hear her mother's, unable to bear her mother's formal reference to her husband, she felt she had to correct her. You don't have to call him Mr. Millington, Mammy. We're married now. You can call him Hugh. Flustered for a moment and embarrassed by her mistake, Mary corrected herself. Of course, I mean, it was all Hugh's idea. We didn't know he was gone off to England. We've been worried sick all these years. After you disappeared like that and we never heard a word from you. Then here, it must have been about two weeks ago, Molly Brayton knocked on the door and said Mr. Millington, I mean Hugh, had sent her to speak to us. Hugh took up the story. It was just after we got married. You know, I wanted to let you bring your parents over for the wedding, but for one reason or another, that didn't happen. Then I thought, why not let them know when we would be home? That way they could come up here and see you straight away. Kate now turned to her father, who remained silent. Hello, Daddy. I'm surprised you came up here at all. Don't you have anything to say for yourself? Hugh was clearly shocked by the way she addressed her father. Now, Kate, there's no need to talk to your father like that. The man hasn't seen you in years. I've invited them to stay for dinner. Isn't it time to put all that all, to put the past behind us? Fury blazed inside of her. How dare he? How dare Hugh go behind her back like this? Not only tell her parents she was back, but to spring them upon her like this with no warning. She would not be sitting down to dinner with these people. She felt some pity for her mother, but as for her father... She hated him even more right now than she had the day she left Rathmichael. Turning to him again, she demanded, what are you doing here, daddy? Is all suddenly forgiven? Because I can tell you here and now, I've not forgiven you, not, and nor will I ever. PJ O'Neill stood up and ignoring Kate, turned to Hugh. Thank you for the invite, Mr. Millington. But as you can see, this wasn't a good idea. We shouldn't have come here. But when you get invited to the big house, you can't say no. We appreciate your hospitality. You'll have your work cut out with this one, but I suppose you know what you're doing. PJ was finished saying his piece and passing Kate, he said, 
come on, Mary, we're going home. There's no place for the likes of us here. Kate's mother tried to salvage the situation. And now Kate, PJ, there's no need to be like that. What happened is all in the past. Can we just forget about it? But Kate knew she needed to quiet her mother before she said any more. Mammy, daddy is right. You shouldn't have come here. There's nothing more to say. You need to leave. Mary was crying now, holding on to her husband's arm, pleading with him not to leave. PJ was already halfway out the door. Kate, putting her arm on the small of her mother's back, guided Mary out of the dining room and towards the front door. Come on, Mammy, I know it's awful, but this is how it has to be. It can't ever go back to the way things were. Pretend tonight never happened. Pretend we're still in England. PJ turned when he got to the front door and grabbed his wife by the arm. Come on, Mary, stop making a show of yourself. Distraught, the woman conceded defeat and followed her husband down the steps to start the long walk down the avenue and back to their home in the village. Before he reached the last step, PJ turned to his daughter. You always were a brazen little bitch. The venom of his words cut the night air. You think you're better than anyone else now that you're living here in the big house. You might have tricked him into marrying you, but remember, we know exactly what you're like. With that, he turned his back on her and marched towards the avenue, her mother following meekly behind him. Kate, her heart beating out of her chest, closed the door with a bang. She turned to see her new husband standing behind her, a look of utter confusion on his face. Wow, Antoinette. And it's such a great place to leave it because as a reader, I just cannot wait to pick it up. Can you tell us where can we buy your book? Absolutely, Yvonne. Um, so The Secrets Left Behind, it's available on Amazon. Um, so Amazon.com, Amazon.co.uk, um, and on uh, Amazon Spain as well. Wonderful. I wish you every success. I can't wait to get my hands on the book. It's been such a joy to have you with us. And thank you so much for being a guest. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been lovely, Yvonne. Thanks for listening to Bookable Space. If you don't already have the book and want to read more, buy it, borrow it from your local library, read it, and if you enjoy it, review it if you haven't already. I hope you'll join us for the next episode of Bookable Space, the audio literary salon with your host, Yvonne Battlefelton. Follow me on Twitter at YBattlefelton, on Instagram on why I write Battlefelton for pictures, interview insights, and more.